Hey guys, just wanted to get ahead of this episode as always to remind you that this podcast contains adult language and adult themes. Um, in addition, today I will be talking about a traditions and monsters from traditions that I was not personally raised in. And I want it to be known that I in no way are these meant to judge, quantify, discredit, or insult any of the traditions brought up today. This is all merely from a place of respect. And if there are any issues, I am welcome to hearing about it and uh, creating a dialogue. Thank you. Alright, so it's time for the main event. We are talking more lady monsters from mythology, folklore, video game, and the like. Uh, This week, uh, to celebrate the release of what is already personally my game of the year, uh, The Legend of Zelda Tears of a Kingdom, we will be comparing our usual yokai suspects to the monsters of Greek and Roman mythology and the different female enemies that you will find in Zelda games. So come along and let's have some fun. Um, Taking a few minutes to tell some stories before we all go back into the Tears of the Kingdom gulag because there's so much to do. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Cavalcade of Tales. I'm your host, Drew, the millennial with a history degree. Um, I want to start off real quick by saying I apologize in advance. Um, Allergy season is here, so I'm going to be a smidge wheezy. So um, if you're going to hear my breath a little more than usual, and I apologize for that because um, the trees are deciding to throw their spunk everywhere and making it my problem. So you're going to hear a lot of... (sighs) wheezing today and i apologize for that uh but yeah yeah uh, this is the second of our trilogy of monster ladies and the people who love them uh this one's going uh we're gonna do some classic greek seductresses i got some more yokai for you and of course zelda enemies everybody is talking about zelda right now because everybody's playing tears of the kingdom it's such a good game I love it to pieces. I'm. There was a part of me that wanted to try to play it while also doing this recording, but um, I don't have the dexterity to play it with one hand, so I'm not. But I am uh, very excited to uh, talk more lady monsters with you today. Um, yeah, so I'm going to start actually with our Zelda monsters. So. Um, I personally have a a strong connection to The Legend of Zelda. It's a very fun franchise. Um, When I was in college, uh, I had two friends who were really into... We were all playing different Zelda games at the same time and getting really hyped for Breath of the Wild. And we all talked about how we dealt with mental illness differently. And jokingly, we were all like, yeah, we're like the three Triforce, you know? You know, one of them, you know, every time they felt depressed, you know, did some sport and, you know, tried to power through it. One of them uh, did the courageous thing, in our opinion, and continued to go out of their way to seek help. And, of course, uh, I just overthought everything. Um, However, of my three friends, I'm currently the only one still alive. So... 
I, um, in memory of them, I got a Triforce of Wisdom tattoo to remind myself that I was uh, always the one who liked to overthink things. So Zelda's always had a special place in my heart. Um, and I'm really glad I'm going to be able to share a little bit of it with you guys today. So all of the information I'm going to bring you today came from one source, which is the Zeldapedia. It's not Zeldapedia. It's the Legend of Zelda Encyclopedia. It's the blue bound book of all of them, because as we all know, they did the three like Zelda encyclopedias. You have the Hyrule Historia, which is green. You have the Zeldapedia, which is blue, and then the red one, which I don't remember. And in there, there's a handy index of monsters. So that's what I'm going to be going through today. And um, one thing uh, eagle-eared listeners might notice is a lot of times in these sec- in these um, like lists compiling I've done, they're in alphabetical order. <laughs> which is not because of my OCD kicking in and doing whatever it wants. It's because uh, most of my th- encyclopedias and dictionaries are in alphabetical order. Even the shit ones. But I'll get to the shit ones when we start talking about great mythology. So, the Legend of Zelda boss. we got bosses and we've got generic enemies. I have a cat who better not step on the computer. Do you want cuddles? Come get cuddles. Come here. Come on over. Alright, Cat Crisis averted. So, Zelda enemies. Uh, we're going to start with the Cubis sisters uh, who were in Phantom Hourglass. Also, I should probably note that there's uh, going to be spoilers for a few different Zelda games. Um, specifically, let's see, we've got spoilers for uh, Ocarina of Time, uh, Oracle of Seasons, Oracle of Ages, Triforce Heroes, and yeah, those those ones. Um, those are the ones that specifically have near get end game bosses. And I know it's a bit hard with Oracle of Seasons, Oracle of Ages, since they were the Game Boy titles, so it's a little hard to get your hands on them to play necessarily i personally haven't played either of them um i do sort of have them i have the game boy emulator versions on my 3ds and i also have the fancy uh legend of zelda manga adaptation of them but i haven't actually played them myself but yeah Anyway, Cuba Sisters, Phantom Hourglass. These are a quartet of sisters who run the ghost ship that kidnapped Tetra, the youngest Tetra. I forgot that there's a period there. I can't even read my own notes. Uh, the youngest sister is uh, afraid of Skultulas, but they all fight Link with attacks that need to be reflected back at them with a mirror shield or just sometimes with a shield in general. Uh, I haven't played Phantom Hourglass yet. I'm... Is that the one I have? The downside to having so many different consoles and so many different games, I don't always remember which ones I have on what console. Let me dig out my DS games. Uh, Yes, I have Phantom Hourglass. I've never played it. 
that might be the next one on my docket once I'm out of the uh, Tears of the Kingdom gulag, is what I've been referring it to. Um, yeah. Uh, the next one is from Triforce Heroes, which I have dabbled in, but it's hard to play single player because it's a multiplayer intended game. But this is the Electric Blob Queen. Uh, the Queen of the Buzz Blobs uh, is she is the mini boss of the Riverside area. Uh, is pink, wears a crown, and likes to hide in the water to avoid attacks. Uh, for those who don't know, Buzz Blobs are like a variant of like a slime. Uh, but what it is is that they emit you, nine times out of ten they usually emit electricity, so you have to shoot them from a distance or like hookshot them or something in order not to get hit. Um, and the electric blob queen is uh, obviously the queen of them. There's also a king version that you fight later, but uh, we don't care about him right now because, uh, as Shania Twain once said, this one's for the girls. Actually, that's a Shania Twain song. All right. The next group of enemies is sometimes enemies and sometimes friends, depending on which game title it is. Um, an important thing to note is that my, the source I was using, the Zelda Encyclopedia, was came out before Breath of the Wild. Um, I do have the Breath of the Wild uh, compendium they put out to make a champion. However, the enemy list in there didn't have any real... Because the goal with this is, if it could be questioned, I went for characters who posed as female um, and who the games used she pronouns for. I didn't want to misgender any monsters. I'm not here to do any problematic gendering. The fact that I'm talking about other cultures as a white man is already thin fucking ice. So yeah. Um, but uh, this is a long tangent to say the next one's the Garuda. So the Gerudo are a desert-dwelling people of strong warrior women um, who it is said that a male is born into the Gerudo once every hundred years and they make him king. Which is, on the one hand, it, like, it's one of those stupid things where like we have this warrior woman society, but the second they can put a man in charge, they do. Okay, sis, I don't fucking think so. This is that male gaze shit. Freya. What are you doing, Freya? I love you. What are you doing? The plastic bag is not your enemy, hun. Thank you. Um, a little peek behind the curtain of how I talk to my cat because she's my five she's going to be five in June and she's my little baby who also is my asshole roommate uh, but yeah uh, the Gerudo are very reminiscent of the Amazons which I might touch upon at another date I might do uh, the Gerudo might come up again if I do like an all female societies episode because there's plenty of concepts of like a female utopia because statistically speaking, women are better at running things. But in terms of them being enemies, uh, this is predominantly in Ocarina of Time and its sequel, Majora's Mask. So in Ocarina of Time, 
they you run into two different types of Gerudo. They are either guards or they're thieves. So the guards are patrolling the Gerudo fortress, and if you fought, and if their link is found, he is immediately thrown into prison, and you have to, I believe, use the hookshot to get away. Whereas the thieves are the actual ones you get to fight. They fight with uh, spin attacks, and they wield dual blades that have a cur, so they're like scimitars, because it's a very... Uh, Middle Eastern themed kind of thing like Northern Africa Middle Eastern it's quite the aesthetic it's really pretty um, Majora's Mask uh, changed the Gerudo slightly where instead of being a warrior people who have a location they're pirates so you do still run into Gerudo guards uh, they patrol the Pirate Bay Fortress um, and also throw a link out, but then you also have just your generic pirate. Uh, these pirates, again, are the ones that Link actually fights, and they're all protecting these Zora eggs that you need to get. Um, like with the thieves, they also have a special attack where if they hit Link with this attack, you automatically get thrown out. It doesn't matter how much health you have. Which makes traversing those sections super difficult. Our next lady is the Gyorg female from the Minish Cap, which was a Game Boy Advance game. Um, oh shit, this was, should have been a spoiler. Spoiler for Minish Cap. Uh, Gyorg female is the boss of the Palace of Winds. Link fights on the back of this red stingray-like monster, making clones to push down like scales on her back, make, revealing her vulnerable eyes. He, they also he has to fight off her offspring and if needed he can jump on the back of her husband in order to recuperate and prepare for another assault it's uh important that to note that of course you have to attack the eyes because that's like the zelda 101 is oh this monster has a weak point maybe it's their huge fuck off glowing eye The next is another Phantom Hourglass foe. This is uh, Jolene. Obligatory Dolly Parton reference here. We're begging her to please not steal our treasure. So Jolene is a pirate woman who has beef with uh, the character Linebeck, who is the your main ally in the game and the, the captain of the ship that takes you around. She likes to attack your ship with torpedoes, and when she gets near enough she will hop on board and challenge Link to a duel. I'm trying to remember, I believe in the manga, because again, I haven't actually played the Phantom Hourglass. But in the manga, I believe they do take a little bit of liberty, so I'm not 100% if it's like one-to-one -to, -one to the game, but she does end up helping you at the end, which is quite nice. But, no, it is what it is. So this next entry is actually a trio two sisters in a fusion this is Kotake and Komei and then their fusion of twin Roka who are in Ocarina of Time and Oracle of Seasons slash Oracle of Ages one thing to note is that technically 
uh, Kotake and Kome are in Majora's Mask as well, but they are not enemies. They are just NPCs you have to interact with. Uh, so for the purposes of this, we're going to ignore everything they do in Majora's Mask and focus on Ocarina of Time and then Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons. So the way it works is uh, Kotake and Kome are the characters who link the two Oracle games together. So you fight one at the end of each game. And then what happens is once you've beaten, once they're beaten, you get the, it kind of fuses and you go to the end, the end game, which is the fusion of both, where you fight Twin Rova, their fusion, and then move on with why these people were, you know, I believe it's Ganon. I don't know if it's Ganondorf or Ganon. It goes back and forth. But you have to go fight this version of Ganon, who was the one who set the actions in place. So Kotake uh, specializes in ice magic, where Kome specializes in fire. And they are, um, in Ocarina of Time, they are Ganondorf's adopted mothers who teach him how to fight and use magic and sort of teach the uh, might is right kind of thing. Uh, after fighting them for a little bit, you will then, they combine and you have to fight them as Twin Rova. Uh, they are, um, that's the enemy that you fight once you've linked Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons together. In addition, they are also the boss of the Spirit Temple of Ocarina of Time. So they use both type of magic, and I believe it has something to do with using the right rod at the right time. I'm not 100%. I have not beaten Ocarina of Time. Um, I, have a, I have a good chunk of those other games. have not beat them all, but I am a very big fan. And you can be a fan of things without having consumed all the content and getting everything right. So, yeah. Our next character is a the final boss of Triforce Heroes, Lady Maud. This is a fashion diva because Triforce Heroes is all about uh, what type of clothes you wear gives you bonuses. And the entire premise of your journey is that Lady Maud has cursed Princess Styla to be wearing tights forever. She didn't intend it to be a curse. She just thought she would look good in tights. Uh, but when everybody started being mean to her, she's like, well, fuck y'all. Now it's a curse. Um, she attacks you with her parasol, and then she actually fuses with the stage where she becomes a butterfly-like enemy and rains lightning. Um, the next uh, group of bosses or mini bosses um they've been in a lot of different zelda games so i don't have like specific ones listed but uh anytime you need to face a poe woman which is poes are like they're similar to wraiths where it's like vengeful angry ghosts uh they often are in flowy cloaks have a hat and are usually carrying a lantern so it's more like wraithy uh, so most of the time, 
you have to fight these girls, and they are the Poe sisters, known as Amy, Beth, Joel, and Margaret, sometimes called Mech. And they're just various mini-bosses that you have to fight throughout the games. Our next one, uh, our final two are, I've only got two left, and they're both uh, spoilers for Oracle of Ages, specifically. Which is more of a female-driven game than uh, Oracle of Seasons, from what I know about it. Because Oracle of Seasons is about Link making a ragtag team and trying to rescue the Oracle of Seasons while he they were both working in a circus troupe together. Whereas in Oracle of Ages, the is a lot more of like dealing with like family lineage and the oracle goes back and there's like an evil queen and who will come up in a little bit actually uh but the first one is the shadow hag yeah, she is the boss of the moonlit grotto uh, she likes to hide in the shadows and popping out only to attack link when their back is turned um this is usually a great way to tutorialize the spin attack, uh, which allows you to attack quickly and behind you. Again, I have not actually played a lot of oracles yet. Um, it's on my giant ass list of games to get through. And then f our final Lady Zelda enemy is the final boss of Oracle of Ages, Varen the Evil Queen. She is doing everything in her power to control Labernia's past and future. Sorry. Varen isn't the queen. I misremembered this. Varen is the woman who, in, uh, who is after the Oracle of Ages. The evil queen is someone this, that Varen possessed. Because Varen will fight you as a possessed queen, and then a turtle, and then a spider, and then finally some bee woman looking thing just to try to kill you. Uh, and Labrinia, I believe, is the name of the Oracle of Ages. And what she's trying to do is she's trying to build a massive tower to make it easier to resurrect Ganondorf or Ganon, whichever version of him it is. And that is our segment on Zelda bosses for this week. So our next batch is where we're going to start dipping into folklore again. Um, and a little bit, this is, I wouldn't call it, like, I'm not, yeah, okay, so, hold on, let me, let me start this thought correctly. So the next one is Greco-Roman tradition. And although my family isn't Greek and I'm not Greek, being raised um, in sort of a neo-paganism Wiccan household, um i learned a lot about the different greek de greek and roman deities i learned a lot about many different deities and ceremonies and what to do so i guess i was sort of raised in this tradition but at the same time i'm not greco or roman um the closest thing i have to being greek or italian is the fact that i'm teaching myself italian through duolingo uh, but that doesn't stop me from knowing a lot about these. So let's talk some uh, lady monsters. 
this section uh, was also a little frustrating because I know a bunch of stuff. And what I learned is that the encyclopedias I have for certain subjects are a bit shit. I have this uh, old book of Greek myths from a PH from a guy who got his PhD in mythology. And it's good, but it's not very encyclopedic. It's more of a story-based thing. And then it tells, like, it's got a lot of diagrams of, like, family trees and whatnot, which is helpful, but it wasn't what I was looking for this. And then I have this book that is the Encyclopedia of Mythology, and it literally referenced, it calls itself a quote-unquote comprehensive guide, uh, but didn't proceed to, uh, would reference characters and the definition of a different character and not actually have that that other character um, in the dictionary. So it's a bit, uh, I did my best with what I had. Uh, so we're going to start with the theories um, or the Erinus, which is probably not the correct way to pronounce it, but my ancient Greek is not going to be great. Um, I've done my best to do the um, justice of the fact that there were no soft C's, but at the same time, uh, sometimes like having putting, I will say the soft C because I will die on this hill where I will refuse to pronounce it as Kikoro. Like, that's Cicero, bitch. No. So, um, the Furies versus the Arignes, um is partially due to the fact where um, the Arignes is the Greek term for them, which is the angry ones. Whereas Romans called them the Furiae, which would become our knowledge of the word Furies. They are born of the blood of Uranus that fell into Gaia's womb when he was castrated by his son Cronus. Um, which is a really weird-ass sentence when you think about it, because I just told you that the sky's dick got cut off by time. And the blood made some monsters when it fell into the earth. But uh, sometimes that's how myth works. Um, so these Furies are three sisters that are vengeance goddesses with snakes interwoven into their hair who punish mortals for various crimes. Um, they, If you go further in... Um, especially in the Orphic tradition, they have names and more specific jobs. I would love to be able to explain more what the Orphic tradition means, but that's going to be its own episode because I'm going to have to do a lot of research to figure out the difference between the or like the more nuanced things because it's even in the eyes of people who do um, folkloric stories and mythology as a whole, the Orphic tradition versus the Hesiod versus the Apollodorus. Uh, it's tricky. It's it's tricky, but it's also fascinating because it's one of the things I really like about mythology and folklore is the fact that like there's no technically true or correct way to tell these stories because there's so many different things, and the people in the past had different ways of telling them. So 
the names I know more of because of the Orphic tradition, which I've done a little bit of diving into uh, because of Supergiant's game uh, Hades. Because Hades is heavily um, mired in the Orphic tradition, and I wanted to look into it a little more. Um, it's a super fun game. I haven't gotten to the end credits, but I have finished a run, and uh, sometimes it sometimes is just a fun game to pick up and play a few rounds and feel good. And of course, I romanced the Death God because fucking why not? And I I had an epiphany while I'm on this sidetrack. The reason everybody likes to pair Zagreus with Thanatos is because Zagreus, naturally spiky hair, and Thanatos has sort of like a mid, an A-frame mid-part of gray hair. And it's all of us fucking millennials who grew up on the game, on the fucking Nintendo DS Phoenix Wright games, who thought that the spiky-haired defense attorney, Phoenix Wright, should end up with the silver-haired fucking A-frame bastard, Edgeworth. It's just Phoenix and Edgeworth, but Greek mythology. AU confirmed. That's why everybody wants them together. I'm taking no notes. Uh, so there are three Fury sisters. The first one is Megara, uh, which, not to be confused, with Megara. I know that sounds very similar. The literal difference is just a E in one of them. So Megara with an E is the Fury. And she punishes adulterers, thieves, and oath breakers. Megara without the E is the wife of Hercules, uh, the best Disney princess in the movies, but also uh, does not live a happy life in the original myth. Because in the original, well, or quote unquote original, again, there's no such thing as an original myth. But in the in most traditions of the Hercules story, uh, Megara is the wife that Hercules kills when Hera finds out that uh, he's a bastard and um, sends him mad and he kills his family so he has to do the 12 labors. Um, the wife and mother of the children he kills is uh, Megara. The next sister is Alecto. She is known as the she's like righteous fury. Uh, she kills those who commit crimes of passion, such as uh, tricking someone into marrying you under false pretenses or uh, rape and other sexual offenses. And then the third one is Tisiphone. Uh Tisiphone is the one who punishes murderers, especially those who commit uh, the uh, crimes of uh, killing men in the household, such as patricide or fratricide. Because this is in Greek tradition and Roman tradition too, uh, met, uh, women did not have as high a role. I mean, neither did slaves, but like if you kill a slave, like killing a slave is like no big fucking deal. Um, I have a great book actually, uh, book recommendation. It's uh, called, where is it? I'm looking for it on my bookshelf so I say the exact name. A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum by Dr. Emma Southern. And it's an entire book that is just about Roman murder, and there's a whole chapter about Romans killing their slaves. Um, which is sad, but also fascinating. Um, and to, so Tisiphone was specifically more focused on the people who murdered like their brothers or their dads, because like that's an actual crime. 
in the eyes of Greek society. Um, in true fashion, as we know, the Greeks loved doing things in groups of three. You got your three furies, your three fates, your three generations of immortals. And so now we have the three Gorgons. Now this is where things get complicated. Because there are three, um, there's multiple traditions about how the Gorgons were. And there's not a lot of physical description of Gorgons before the Medusa myth. Um, so like, as we know Gorgons right now, they are beings who have snakes for hair and their gaze turns men to stone. And we know this due to the Medusa myth. Now, depending on the version of the Medusa myth that you know or is told, it also depends on how everything happened. Um, so I'm going to tell you the version I usually go with and the version that I... If someone's like, Drew, what's the story of Medusa? This is the version I tell. So there was once three priestesses. Um, there was Steno, or Strength, Medusa, or Queen, and Uriel, or Wide Leaving. Uh, these three sisters were toted uh, as they were seen as they could be potentially demigods, um, and their beauty went across the land, with Medusa being considered the most beautiful of the three. So one day, as Medusa was inside giving her prayers, um, Poseidon, uh, the one of the uh, sexual predators of Greece, um, decided he was going to have Medusa, whether she wanted it or not. Um, unfortunately, he... So what he does is he transforms into Medusa and tricks her sisters into believing that she had to step out for a second and is just going back into the temple. And they're like, yeah, sure, go ahead. And then he goes in and he assaults Medusa in the temple of Athena. Athena, um, because this is considered a slight against her, takes out the anger she has for her temple being defiled on the person that she can because Athena is in a highly patriarchal structure and there's only so and granted there's only so much you can do in the patriarchal structure but at the same time there's not a lot of myths about Athena being real nice to other women she's not a woman who champions other women which is a bit rough because she is seen as like one of the girl boss goddesses so in the tradition I know, Medusa punishes, Medusa is punished, and her hair turns to snakes, and her gaze turns people to stone, and she is sent with her sisters to live on an island forever. Her sisters also get transformed at this point, and her two sisters are made immortal as a means to punish them for knowing that they have to live forever knowing that not only do they are they turned into monsters but they let this horrible thing happen to their sister and that's arguably a very terrible it, i mean it's all a terrible punishment um in the traditions and that's the story i know 
there are some traditions where they are demigods but it for some reason something's up with medusa and she's not immortal while her two sisters are in those traditions they are the daughters of porcius who what who himself was a son of gaia so they are they have titan blood within them which arguably would make them witches like cersei and medea but who knows again i'm not covering witches because witches aren't monsters um they're just people and i I'll do a whole episode on witches at another point. I actually listened to a really fun uh, podcast today about witchcraft hunts in uh, uh, Scotland, uh, which had a lot to do about the devil's dick. Um, but I cannot go on a tangent about the devil's dick right now in this episode about female monsters. So we're just going to move on. Our next monster is Scylla. Scylla was, or Scylla. Scylla sounds better. Uh, Scylla was a six-headed sea monster who uh, killed sailors in the Strait of Messalina. Um, it is said in some traditions had the concept where she was uh, just she friggin was always kind of there. But um, in later traditions and especially in Ovid's Metamorphosis we learned about the myth that Scylla was once a nymph. And after falling for a minor go- the same minor god as Circe, uh, in her jealousy, Circe turned her into a sea monster. Uh, there's a really interesting scene of it in uh, Madeline Miller's book on Circe. Where it's... Uh, Scylla was you know always rude to Cersei and therefore she was friggin um and she's like let your outsides match how ugly your insides are and that's what transforms Scylla into a monster now I'd be remiss if I was going on a massive tangent about Greek monsters and didn't mention the sirens. Sirens were sea nymphs who sang songs about people's desires in order for men to crash their ships into them. Um, in some of the more romantic artwork in like the Renaissance period of uh, the sirens, they were like seductive. They were essentially just nude women on the shores who sang well. However, um, in most Greek traditions, uh, they were half bird, half woman. Um, another reason why my encyclopedia of mythology sucks is uh, instead of saying woman half the time in the descriptions of these monsters, uh, it would say half woman or like half snake, half maid. And I'm just like, okay, fucking what? Anyway, sirens, uh, we uh, know them uh, specifically from the odyssey where odysseus has the men stuff their ears so that they can't hear and then has them then tie him to the mast so that he can hear their song because odysseus uh, loves a thrill and 
Not the best husband, but... Okay. Our next one is the Lamia. The Lamia are half-women, half-snakes who uh, devour children and attack men. And the story behind the Lamia go is that originally Lamia, the original Lamia, was a Libyan queen. She eventually caught the attention of Zeus, uh, being one of his many, many con sexual conquests. There's of course pissed off Hera. So uh, Hera decided, um, not only am I going to drive you mad so that you kill your own children, I'm going to then turn you half snake and you're going to kill babies forever. Um, it's one of those things, it's, Lamia isn't one of those, like, tri the halls of women. I haven't decided if I'm going to do a full episode on this yet because there are, there is podcasts about, like, the concept of, like, the terrible, the mother who kills their children. There was a few um, I listened to from Deviant Women, a podcast that is uh, no longer uh, putting out new episodes, but uh, was very good, and it was done by two doctor, uh, doctoral women in uh, Australia. And uh, one of them did, like, focused on monstrous women, and it talked about, like, women like Lamia, like La Llorona, like Medea, these women who were killed their children. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe I'll do an episode on that. I Maybe not. I'd have to find more examples of it. And uh, also, I'm not a huge fan of uh, children dying. So that's also something I've got to get through. Um, so our next Greek monster are the Harpies. Uh, these were storm goddesses who uh, would run through, uh, steal children, terrorize battlefields, and uh, fuck with the wounded. Um, they were originally were meant to be winged goddesses of beauty, but they, uh, were, uh, turned into little thiefy bastards who just went around causing mischief and mayhem. Uh, it, on the spectrum of bird to woman, um, because they are also part bird, part woman, like the, um, sirens. Sirens tend to be more like half and half, like it's like lower half bird, upper half nude woman so that if a ship got close they didn't get scared off immediately being like that woman who called us over is part bird because you wouldn't be able to see the you know bird half you just see a topless woman and most men would you know once they see a topless woman their brain shuts off um whereas the harpies although their titties be out as well because most monsters titties be out because fucking flaunt them if you got them um they had a lot more bird-like qualities uh, fun aside, uh, my favorite Yu-Gi-Oh archetype that I like to play is Harpy Ladies. Harpy Ladies are a winged beast attribute. They are they are essentially hot women with wings and like bird claws. Um, I got into Harpy Lady because my favorite character in the original Yu-Gi-Oh! was My Valentine, which for most people of my generation who are really into Yu-Gi-Oh! were their sexual awakening. 
because hot damn. At my Valentine, who specialized in uh, two types of monsters, uh, Harpies and Amazonuses. And uh, I still play, um, every now and again, I still have a relatively competitive Harpy deck on my Yu-Gi-Oh game that I'll bust out and troll people with. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we've only got a couple more, and then we'll get into our yokai section. Uh, but the first one is the Sphinx. Um, so one thing to note is that there are... This is not to be confused with the Egyptian Sphinx, because the Egyptian Sphinx isn't a monstrous symbol. It is a protective symbol. Um, that didn't really change when the Greco-Ptolemaic line took over Egypt after the death of Alexander the Great. Um, but I'm also not an Egyptologist. I don't know enough about it. Uh, but the Sphinx is the daughter of Echidna and Orpheus, which I'll get to in the next section. Uh, she had the face and breasts of a woman, but the body of a lion and the wings of a falcon. Uh, Hera sent her to Thebes to curse the city making it so that she would eat anybody who tried to assist or get to the city if they didn't solve her riddle. Um, Oedipus, uh, history's greatest problem solver, uh, is no often known as like Oedipus the Clever because he hears a thing where it's like the Queen of Thebes has agreed to marry whoever can solve the Sphinx's riddle. And as far as Oedipus knows at this point, he is a prince of a different town. And he's been being been raised by parents, a different set of parents his entire life. I want to say Thessaly, but I'm not 100%. So Oedipus goes to Thebes and he confronts the Sphinx and the Sphinx gives him the riddle. Well, walks in four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs at night. Um, which everybody, because of the Oedipus myth, now knows that that answer to that riddle is man. They crawl on all fours at the beginning of their life, they walk on two legs in the, end, in the middle, and then as they get too old, they need a cane to support themselves. Which, uh, of course, allowed Oedipus to marry the queen, Jocasta, uh, not realizing that that was actually his mother and setting a terrible prophecy into place. The Sphinx, um, unfortunately, because uh, she's a woman who allegedly did bad in the story, has to do with most women who will do bad in stories too, she threw herself into the ocean and killed herself after having her one riddle be solved. Instead of, I don't know, learning a new riddle. Our final Greco-Roman monster for today is the Echidna. She is the mother of monsters. She was the she's half woman, half snake, um, similar to Alania. She was the mate of the Titan Typhon, and she gave birth to the Hydra, the Chimera, Cerebus, and Orthus, and those are all her children with Typhon. Now the thing is, depending on the tradition depends on her parentage and how gross this monster family tree gets. If you go with Hesiod, she is the child of Porcius and Keto, 
which means that she only commits incest once because she does spawn two children with her child Orthus, who is uh, essentially Cerebus with one less head, and they're more of like attached like to the side, kind of like conjoined twins. Uh, but he is a fire, and that one is a lot more associated with fire than uh, Cerberus is. However, in Apollodorus, she is the child of Gaia and Tartarus. This, of course, it being Tartarus the Titan versus Tartarus the Place, which is a whole other complex Greek thing. He's not the only god that um, a Titan that we run into this issue with. Um, we also have Hades. Uh, sometimes Hades goes by a different name because Hades was also the name of the underworld and the name of the ruler. I remember reading in one of those crap encyclopedias that sometimes uh, Hades had a different name, which was the Greek for the uh, guest welcomer because his domain held the most people. Um, but Apollodor But in the Apollodorus tradition, by being the child of Gaia and Tartarus, she'd be Typhon's sister, which means she would be incestuously making multiple monsters, and then she then proceeded to mate with one of her children, Orthus, and produced the Sphinx and the Nemean Lion, which is art, which is gro which is you know it is what it is, but also could be a very speaking anthropologically. An interesting way to like see a somewhat understanding of the dangers of inbreeding a family by using your myths being like well these this brother and sister fucked and they just had a bunch of monsters and then she fucked her son and even more monsters came out um however that theory i just posed as i was thinking about it falls apart very quickly because um most of the uh olympian gods are siblings so, like, Hera and Zeus are siblings, wouldn't they? So that problematizes things slightly. Uh, but yeah, that is our segment on Greco-Roman gods. Or, not Greco-Roman gods, let's just talk about gods. Greco-Roman monsters. Real quick, before I start the last section, I would, uh, real quick just like to do a plug for, uh, our Patreon. Um, I started a Patreon to try to help offset some of the costs of the podcast and um, continue to help myself keep myself accountable and everything. Uh, so you can uh, join the Patreon at patreon.com slash cavalcade of tales. We have multiple tiers. Uh, perks in, um, at the base $5 tier, you can uh, join a Discord community I've created where we can uh, talk all things mythology, folklore, video games, and the like. And uh, we will be, I'm uh, starting a book group, a uh, book club, uh, called the We Don't Talk About Book Club Club. Because why do a normal book club when you can make a fight club reference? And uh, so patrons at the $5 tier get to join the Discord, get to join the uh, book club. I will be, hopefully announcing the um, I'm going to start the book club on uh, June 1st since I started the Patreon sort of in the middle of May and um, 
I'll be announcing the uh, first book at the last week of May so that people can get ready for the month of June. And um, I hope to see you all there. And uh, uh, thank you for listening to this uh, quick little plug before I start talking about yokai. All right. It wouldn't be a Lady Monsters episode if we didn't talk about some fun Lady Yokai. Um, this week, um, the episode is going to be a little longer. I apologize about that. And um, so I'm not going to cover as many Lady Yokai because the batch I have have a lot of different stories. So I'm going to touch upon some of the real fun ones and some of the little, like, just cool little things I found. Um, so the, f- uh, again, my sourcing for all of these yokai is the translated and compendium works of Tori Yamasekian uh, from the book Japan Demodium. I also use uh, the uh, handy website yokai.com because the creator there is someone who lives in Japan and discusses these folklores with the people in who actually live in there so it's a good way to gather like a first kind of like an account of people who are currently living in the tradition and yeah so this one's gonna be a little bit more story heavy so i hope you guys are ready for some fun yokai stories at the end of this so the first one is the hanaya uh most famously this uh yokai is from the uh tale of genji written in 1021 which is considered one of the first novels ever written as we understand the novel format um because a lot of people sometimes like to give it to don quixote but i believe don quixote was written 400 or so years after this one um but I cannot confirm that. I'm currently Googling um, some info real quick. Yes, so the author is one of the real fun things is like um, a lot in this uh, fun episode about, you know, women. um, The first novel was written by a a lady-in-waiting. Uh, named Murasaki Shikabu. She wrote it in the 11th century, which would be, yeah, because it's 1021, so it's the 11th century. And it's a tale about a woman named Lady Rakujo. And she is in love with the heartthrob Hikaru Genji. And she feels scorned because she wants to be with him but he is married and has a pregnant wife so what happens is that she um is so angry her soul leaves her body while she sleeps and torments genji's pregnant wife aoi until she dies it's also known as lady rakujo's Ikiril, or living ghost. Um, And that is the major plot beats for the Tale of Genji. Um, Thanks to a quick Googling, uh, Tale of Genji came out 
almost a little under 600 years before Don Quixote. Because it was released in two parts in 1605 and 1615. So definitely an older book. Um, in a more general sense of a Hanya, a Hanya is the uh, Oni that are transformed from women who are overcome with jealousy. And their name actually is the shorthand for the female Oni masks that are used in certain types of Japanese theater. In the more generic version of this yokai, oh, sorry, my face itches, um, there's three separate classes. The first are the Naminari. These are women who have like small horns and can control dark magic. However, this as the lowest class of this type of yokai, they can actually become human again through enough devotion, prayer, and penance. Because the Hanaya is also a, it's a Sanskrit word from Buddhist teachings. And it's a form of sutra, which is like a chant or prayer. Um, the second level of Hanyas are Chunaris. They have sharp teeth, longer horns, and they can perform more powerful magic. Um, they're, uh, they, not, they can't necessarily become human again. However, Buddhist prayers can repel or detain them into certain locations. And then finally, you have the Hanari. These are the most powerful three, and there is no stopping them or saving them because they are so consumed by fury and jealousy that they've gone full demon, um, contorting their bodies into serpentine-like creatures that can breathe fire. Um, our next lady is um, a very famous one as well. This is the Tamamo no Mai. She is considered one of the most powerful and dangerous creatures to ever live in Japan in multiple folklore texts. Because she is a nine-tailed kitsune. Um, the way kitsune work is they are fox spirits that, can that have the ability to transform into human women. And the more tails they have, the more powerful their magic, because it says how long they've lived. Um, fun little aside, since this episode is going to be a long one anyway. Um, Kitsune, from what I've learned through little bits of research, um, their name comes from the phrase like to come back to in Japanese, because there's a myth about a Kitsune where a woman where a man helps a fox out of a trap. And then within a couple days, he meets a woman, falls in love with her, and get married. And when she goes to have children, she says, okay, keep your dog away while I'm giving birth. And the man's like, okay, that makes sense. You are giving birth is a tumultuous time. You don't want the dog bringing any germs in. Uh, but the dog kept barking at the door, so when the man looked inside to see what was going on, uh, his wife had turned into a fox. And so he, all he saw was a fox cradling an in, his infant son. So uh, she, noticing something was wrong, uh, ran for it and was chased by the dog for a bit. And the man said, I do not understand, but you can always return to me. And so, the kids, so his wife would... Uh, leave him at 
daybreak and come back at nightfall and sleep with him as man and wife. And I think this is kind of a little sweet story. Kitsune also caused troubles, but um, that's for another episode. This one is just a more specific one. Um, so, a uh, description in the 16th century story collection known as the Otogitsushi says that, quote, uh, that Tamamoe is, quote, the smartest and most powerful woman in the whole country, and perhaps the whole world, whose body naturally exudes a lovely scent, and her clothes stayed beautiful all day. Um, around about a... So her story actually takes place about a hundred years after the Tale of Genji comes out, which is a fun little way to orient ourselves in time. Um, she was a woman who seduced Emperor Kanoe around 1155 and became his favorite consort. However, once she became lead consort, his health slowly started to go into decline. And everyone's like, what the hell is going on here? So they called for different doctors and fortune tellers to try to figure out what's going on with the emperor. And one fortune teller says, it's his mistress. Tamamo no Mei is a kitsune with uh, plans for the throne and showed them a magic mirror which revealed her true form as a fox. So she fled and uh, eventually was shot dead by one of the emperor's retinue and became something known as the Sheshio Seki, or the life-taking stone. Now here's where things get fun and interesting. Uh, that stone is situated over a sulfurous hot spring so one of the conceptions and one of the ideas is that perhaps the fact that saying that a powerful fox spirit lives there could be an explanation for why when people went to this stone they would get sick because they'd be um, inhaling sulfur dioxide which can cause a lot of respiratory issues and make people sick very easily um but there was also a uh large amount of controversy and terror because in t march of 2022 um, the Sesiyoseki, believed to hold this dangerous fox spirit, was found broken in two and the prayer rope just strewn to the side. Um, which is kind of also fun, because, like, how often does, like, a sacred stone that was used to seal people get, you know, broken in half? It's kind of like... Um, it wasn't a surprise to people, because there, people did note that there was, um, some minor cracking in the stone over like the past year or two um so the more common belief is that just through uh erosion and whatnot the stone just broke apart but um who knows maybe there's an evil fox spirit that's roaming around japan maybe um not to be extreme or anything but uh, wasn't um, didn't a Japanese prime minister just die I probably shouldn't be trying to connect those types of things but um, yeah uh, so I think um, since I'm doing more story based ones I think I'm only going to do three yokai today I'll save the rest of them for the uh, part three of this lady monster trio which will come out next week. Uh, so I'm going to end this one with the Honeona, or Bone Woman. Uh, because let's end this story on a fun note. 
So the Hone Ona is a yokai who wanders through the night holding a peony lantern, and her goal is to seduce men and gain their life essence. So let's tell a story. So there is a, I've heard a few different versions of this story through various podcasts, um, and it's one of some countries' most, like, their favorite, um, t- like, ghost stories. And so the way it works is that a man, um, Lee, is very alone. He's either not married, or in some versions, he's recently widowed. And then one day, he sees a beautiful woman walking around with a peony lantern. Um, in some versions of the tale, uh, she is just some random woman, but in the, in the widow versions, it is his wife. And he is so taken by her that he puts the moves on her and she accepts very easily. And they just begin uh, seeing, having a sexual relationship. Uh, but she leaves every morning. Now, one could argue that it, uh, whether or not the man would have to feel weird about the fact that, like, I met this woman and she's so willing to have sex with me, but she ha- she's like, I can't stay here p- before daybreak. Granted, there are some men who would see that as a perfect situation, um, but others, who knows. In the widow version, he begins to live with his wife again, but she insists uh, because he knows she suffered some sort of illness, she asks him to keep the covers drawn and everything dark in the rooms so that she can. it's easier on her, her sickly body and eyes. Um, then one day, there's always some weird-ass neighbor who's too curious for their own good and is kind of a pervert who, like, peeps in on the protagonist and their lover and what he sees is his neighbor fucking a skeleton um in the versions where the man is a widow um he grows mad with grief and uh, kills himself so he can be with his wife properly um but in the versions where it's just some single guy he goes to a buddhist temple and he's like oh shit i'm fucked i'm done fucked up i've been fucking a skeleton and the priest is like don't worry this is super fucked up but we got something for you we, uh, here's a charm and you're going to place the charms at the top of your house they will make it so that she cannot enter and he's like oh my god that's such a good idea because I 100% will get seduced again I, um, my dick will take over and I will just have to fuck this woman so it's a good thing that we were putting it so that she can't enter my house uh, it takes him uh, I don't know, uh, 32 minutes to give in once uh, she arrives again, and she's just like, uh, I can't enter your house. And she's like, it's a shame, I was uh, gonna let you do some freaky shit, and he just, you know, what? And she's like, well, since you can't come to my your house, why don't you come to my house, and we can get it on there. Um, and the following morning, when the priest and his neighbor hadn't heard from the man uh they start a search party looking for him and they find him dead in a grave being embraced by the skeleton of the woman who fucked him and that is a hone ona 
the woman who fucks men to death in her afterlife. All right, and that will uh, do it for this week's episode. I try not to have these go uh, too far over an hour, um, just for convenience's sake. But I still wanted to get some yokai in, because this is just the um, yokai comparison episodes, but uh, with a more cohesive theme. Um, So I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Um, As always, I thank you for listening. Um, Next week will be the final week of our trilogy on female monsters. Um, I still have to figure out um, what I'm going to do with the current plan at the moment is I'm going to try to go through all my Native American and just uh, like white trash American folklore to see if I can find any good female monsters in those. Um, Definitely more yokai and then uh, who knows. Um, The third option is still a little bit up in the air. Uh, Maybe I'll just do one big episode of yokai. Uh, Who knows? It's uh, I'll definitely but next week will definitely be the last of this little mini series on uh, female monsters and the people who love them. Uh, in this case, uh, quite literally, uh, since one of them was being was fucking a skeleton. Um, if you want to get in contact with me to uh, ask questions or um, just you know tell me if the sounds quality shit or anything like that, um, you can contact me at White Trash Historian on uh, Instagram or TikTok. And uh, as always, you are, um, I can be contacted through our brand new Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash cavalcadedtales. Uh, thank you all for listening this week. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go play Legend of Zelda Tears of Kingdom right fucking now.